We're continuing this series called The Beautiful Mess. What we do at Woodland Hills Church, if you're visiting, is just go, by, go through the Bible one verse at a time. Nothing very fancy. We just study the Bible. That's all we do. Um, and this particular section we're entitling, entitling The Beautiful Mess. And we've got small groups all over the place going through that wonderful booklet that our community area uh, put together and people uh, getting study guides off the internet. And we're all studying this at the same time. I love it. I love it. This message is called Leadership with a Limp, Limping in Leadership, but as the message evolved throughout the week, it also came to be called kind of a subtitle, Bottom Feeders, <laughs> Bottom Feeders, and really it could be called subtitle, uh, Religious Leaders Who Are Bottom Feeders, uh, and uh, You'll see the connection between those two things, hopefully, by the time this message is done. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 6, TNIV version. It says, Jesus told him this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? It's funny they call that a parable. It sounds just like a question. What do I know? Will they not both, the leaders and those who follow the leaders, fall into a pit? They can't see where they're going. Students are not above their teacher. You need to know that. And all who are fully trained will be like their teacher. Pray with me here just for a moment. Lord, impregnate this message with your authority and your kingdom presence to go into our ears and into our minds and into our hearts to build your kingdom, to make us more kingdom-like, to give us kingdom wisdom and kingdom character. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We often say uh, here at Woodland Hills Church that you know, to dig into the Word, to really get into the nook and cranny and the deep stuff, the best way to do that is to ask questions. Just ask questions. So here are some questions I want to ask that will get us into this passage here. Um, why is this passage here? That's a good question. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom on the Sermon on the Plain, and all of a sudden, apparently out of nowhere, he starts talking about blind leaders leading the blind. Why? What's that got to do with the price of petunias on Tuesday? It, it, it seems rather random. What's it doing here? And who are these blind leaders? And why are they blind? What kind of blindness do they have? What is Jesus warning us about? What's going on here? Now, when you ask questions of the Bible, one of the best ways to start to get answers is to look at the context in which a verse is found. So let's look at the two verses that follow this one. And I'll be preaching on those verses next week. But let's look at the two immediate verses right now. We might get an idea what the blindness is about. Jesus said this, starting in verse 41. Why do you look at a speck of sawdust in someone else's eye, but you pay no attention to the plank or the two-by-four sticking out of your own eye? How can you say, friend, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see that the, pl the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. Now, if you've got a plank sticking out of your eye, it seems to me that you're pretty blind. You can't see, which I think begins to tell us what this blindness is about that Jesus is addressing. He seems to be addressing leaders who have got two-by-fours sticking out of their own eye. They don't notice their own shortcomings, their own sin, uh, but they're trying to find little dust particles of sin in other people's eyes. Those are the blind ones uh, that he's talking about. We can begin to get a fuller picture of what he's talking about by looking at the broader context. So very briefly here, 
If you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Plain, starting in verse 27, you find that the first thing Jesus talks about is loving your enemies and doing good to your enemies and never retaliating against your enemies. Then in verse 36 and 37, he talks about being merciful and not judging others. And then in verse 38, he talks about having this generous, outrageously generous lifestyle. And I submit to you that the blind leaders that he's talking about here precisely because they've got two-by-four sticking out of their own eyes and they think it's their job to find dust particles in other people's eyes, those leaders are unable to do any of the things that Jesus just taught us to do. They can't enter into the kingdom life. There's a connectedness between being blind, having two-by-four sticking out of your eyes on the one hand, and being unable to love your enemies on the other hand. There's a connectedness between having two-by-fours coming out of your eyes and being a leader who's looking for respect in other people's eyes, on the one hand, and not being able to live with outrageous generosity, on the other hand, or being merciful, or being able to forgive, or being able to refrain from judging others. And what I want us to see here this morning is the connectedness of those things. And it's going to have an impact on all of our lives individually, and it will have an impact on, on who we decide to follow. Okay, to get at the connectedness of, of, of really something that weaves together this entire uh, message that we've been going through uh, on Sermon on the Plain, this beautiful mess series, to get at this, we've got to get as foundational as you can possibly get. Let's go to the very foundation of the kingdom. This is Kingdom Talk 101. And some of you have heard this before, and that's okay because you can never hear this enough. This is as important as anything I could possibly say from the pulpit. It's as foundational as anything I could say from the pulpit. It goes like this. God created us, in case you didn't know or perhaps you forgot. God created you so that he, he could pour his life into you and then you could overflow with life towards others. That's the kingdom program. He created you with an incredible vacuum in the core of your being, in your spirit. A hunger that only he can fill. And that's great and beautiful because he wants to fill it. And so he wants to be the only source of our life. And by that I mean, he wants to be the, the, the core of our identity, the source of our feeling of satisfaction, that life is worth living, our, the source of our self-esteem, the source of our security. All of our innermost needs are to be met by virtue of our relationship with God. And he wants to pour his life into us, filling that hunger in our soul, so much such that we have a surplus of life and then overflow towards one another. And then overflow towards the animal kingdom and then overflow towards the entire creation. And now, to this extent, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. We are being towards one another what he is being towards us. He overflows towards us, we get full, and we overflow towards one another, the animal kingdom and the entire creation. That is beautiful and that is God's design. That's the dome in which God is king, the kingdom of God. But as many of you know, we individually and collectively rebel against God. We go after false forms of life and we block the flow of life from God to us. God still overflows with life. God still overflows with love towards you. But we have a wall of sin and rebellion that separates us from God. And so that life gets deflected, as it were. But we've still got the hunger in the midst of our soul. That's non-negotiable. That will never, ever, ever go away because it's a good thing that it's there. You're supposed to be hungry. It's supposed to drive you to God. But if you're not getting fed by virtue of your relationship with God, you've got to try to be fed by virtue of your relationship with everything that's not God. 
And so what happens is we develop false ways of trying to feed uh, ourselves, trying to fill the hole in our soul. And we use other people to try to feel good about life and feel, feel like life's worth living and feel like we're somebody and that we've got some worth. We're now trying, instead of overflowing to other people, we're now trying to get life from other people. Uh, you know, uh, do you notice how rich I am or do you notice how powerful I am or do you notice how smart I am or do you notice how religious I am? Or, and, and we feed ourselves with that. Instead of living life out of a center of celebration where we're overflowing and dancing with God, we live a life of desperation, trying to get from our environment, from the world, uh, what God wants to give us for free. And the world becomes a feeding frenzy and a stage of idols. Because an idol is anything that's not God, but that we use to play a God role in our life, which is to meet our innermost needs. That's the fall or the rebellion. The minute we do that, a third thing happens, and it's this. We, 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 we put on ourselves a grid, a grid. It's like the, the spectacles by which we look at the world. And the grid is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why the original sin in the Bible is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's synonymous with the tree of judgment. It's judgment. We judge everything. We're like little walking uh, computers that are constantly filtering everything. Like this, you know, we're filtering it through our grid. And, and we're assessing it in terms of how edible it is. Uh, is this a good source of life? Will this take away life from me? Because we are walking in this mode of hunger, we're always assessing things as potential food. And what is good is what we think will feed us, and what is bad is what we think will not feed us, or even maybe threaten a, a source of life that, that would feed us. So we've got all these idols, and based on the criteria, or based on the particular idol that we're going after, the source of food that we're going after, that sets up a certain criteria by which we judge the world. We're little judgers. And we think our judgment is objective, but in fact, it's not at all. We're judging out of our own neediness. That's why we always notice other people's sins more than we notice our own sins. Uh, the idols can be secular, or idols can be religious. In America, there's a lot of secular idols. And this is just where people get life. Make, it feels like life is worth living. They get out of bed in the morning and give themselves self-esteem on the basis of how big their house is or how nice their car is or what kind of clothes they wear on the basis of how pretty they are or how sexy they are or how good they can sing or how good they can preach or, or, or how nice their lawn looks and, and do people notice their new hairstyle or, or whatever. They're getting life from that. That makes life worth living because you're, you're getting worth. But... Historically, the more common idols have been religious idols. Because you've got to have life kind of already going pretty good for you to even have secular idols. Most people haven't had that. The all-time great idols are religious idols. And, and what religion is, the idolatry of religion, is where you have, uh, you're trying to now get life from the gods. You're not getting it for free, but you're trying to impress God or the gods. And you're trying to impress the people of God, whoever belongs to your religious tribe, on the basis of what you believe, on the basis of what you do, the, the rituals you perform, or, or whatever. And this becomes a source of life to you. Whether it's secular idols or whether it's religious idols, doesn't make any difference at all. They're all idolatry, because you're not getting your life for free. And the minute you do that, the minute you live in this hunger idolatry mode, not out of a center of celebration, but out of a center of desperation, trying to get life, you internalize that grid, and you live in the question how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing before the gods? Are the gods impressed with me? How am I doing before my tribe? 
Uh, am I getting, because you're, you're, you're living in this, in this mode where you're hungry and you need to get life. How do I look? We're constantly comparing and contrasting and evaluating and approving or disapproving. We've got a prosecuting attorney that's in our head. He's the accuser, the one who led us into this in the first place. And now there's that voice in our head. And it either congratulates us because we really hit it out of the park or it condemns us because we didn't. And all that's about getting food. It's about getting life. It's about getting life from idols. This is a human condition. In the light of what's called the fall, beginning with Adam and Eve and continuing on to today, I'd rather call it the rebellion. Because the fall is what happens by accident. Or at least you can fall by accident. Rebellion is when you throw yourself down. And that's what we did. This is the human condition. We are bottom feeders. Now here's what I mean by that. You know what a bottom feeder is? It's a, it's a, it's a kind of fish that feeds off the bottom of a lake or an ocean. Uh, I've only been ocean fishing once in my life. It was a little boat that a guy I knew uh, had, and he took me and my wife and his wife and some others out on this little boat uh, to go ocean fishing. And as I recall, it was a very rough day, a lot of wind, and so there's a lot of motion going on. And my wife it doesn't handle motion very well, so she was sort of helping feed the fish off the side of the boat for a period of time. Remember that, honey? <laughs> Where I go, uh, it was... So she didn't have a great time, but she valiantly put up with it while the rest of us were trying to fish. I caught the first fish. It w- I brought it up, and my first word was, I caught a Picasso fish. Because this fish had two eyes on one side of its head, like those Picasso paintings. And look at that thing. It is ugly. I thought this thing must have been around some kind of nuclear reactor or something. This is mutant fish. Um, now, it turns out that's the way they're supposed to look. This is a, a, a bottom feeder. It's got both eyes on one side of the head because, so it can look for prey while it's feeding off the bottom. It's got this suction thing, gross like vacuum cleaner thing on the other side. And it just floats along the bottom of the ocean and it eats whatever organisms it can find, whatever droppings it can find. It's a scum-sucking fish. And people eat this stuff. I, I, I guess it's supposed to taste pretty good. Anything that ugly can't be good for you. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I think that's uh, out of Chernobyl or something, but... Okay, that's a bottom feeder. Now, here's why I liken the human condition and all of us as being bottom feeders. We were meant to be God's viceroys here on this earth, his co-regents here on this earth. We were meant to be kings and queens of the planet, feasting on the sumptuous life that comes from God, the unsurpassable worth that comes from God, the unimprovable value and fullness and joy that comes from God alone. And instead, we worry about whether someone likes our hair or not. Or do they think our car is cool? Or am I sexy enough? Or am I religious enough? How pathetic! When we are are invited to this banquet table, we forsake that and we settle for this idolatrous, pathetic way of getting life where every day we got to feed off of the environment that we ourselves were supposed to be feeding. We become bottom feeders. And we all struggle with this. Let's be honest about this. We tell ourselves all sorts of stuff, even if we don't express it publicly, that makes us feel a little bit better about our pathetic lives. C.S. Lewis, in one of his essays, he's one of my heroes, and uh, in this essay, he was just being very honest, and he talked about how the other night he was walking home from a party, and all of a sudden he noticed that all the while home, he was congratulating himself for being such a clever man. What a clever, ingenious, insightful, joke-telling, uh, philosophizing guy he is. And, and he noticed that he's doing that because it feels good to do that. It's like you're giving yourself some life. Now, it's perfectly fine and appropriate to feel good about things that you're good at. 
You got a talent, you got a gift, you are funny. It's good to feel good about that. That's how God made you. You glorify God for making you that way. Feel good about it. But don't get life. Don't suck scum from it. Where it becomes uh, uh, the uh, core value of part of your identity. Uh, It makes or breaks your life, makes life worth living. Don't go there. But we all do sometimes. I find myself sometimes living in a story about, man, that was a good statement. Oh, I'm really glad I came up with that idea. Boy, that really impressed so-and-so. And you're telling yourself this. It's appropriate to feel good that you, you know, are able to talk or whatever you can do good. But see, we suck life off of it. And we're addicted to this. We can't help ourselves because we're walking around hungry. We all tend to be, to some degree, bottom feeders. People who come across as being prideful are just hungrier than others. They're, they're just feeding themselves with, with something like, will you please notice that I am really cute? Will you please notice that I sing great? Will you please notice that I have all the books of the Bible memorized or whatever your idol is, and you get life from it? Good to feel good about it, but don't get life from it. That's bottom feeding. And it's tragic because all the while, fullness of life, the only one who can fill our life with the th- stuff that our life was supposed to be filled with is, is God Almighty. And he's sufficient, more than sufficient, and we can feast at that table. But when we don't get that, we walk around hungry and we become bottom feeders. Now, what's this got to do with Luke chapter 6? It's got this to do with Luke chapter 6. If you are, or I should say to the extent that we are bottom feeders, to that extent it's impossible to do Luke 6. It's impossible to do every aspect of what Jesus has been talking about in Luke 6. You might try to do Luke 6, loving your enemies, forgiving your enemies, living without the greatest generosity, being merciful and whatever. You'll try to do it, but you know what? It'll be one more way of bottom feeding. It'll be one more performance thing. If you are a bottom feeder, to the extent that we are bottom feeders, we can't possibly live the kingdom life. Because the kingdom life is all about receiving worth from God and overflowing with life towards others. But you can't possibly overflow with life towards others if you're busy sucking life off of others. Two mutually exclusive things. You can't be living in outrageous love and outrageous generosity and outrageous mercy if all the while you're, you're strapped to this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, evaluating everything as you're trying to suck life and suck worth and suck value off of others and, and your performance and who you're impressing or who you're not impressing. It's utterly impossible. Bottom feeding and feeding off of Christ are absolutely mutually exclusive things, and everything about the kingdom is about feeding off of Christ. It's impossible to live free of judgment. If you're a bottom feeder, because being a bottom feeder is all about comparing and contrasting and all these other things. Now let's talk about leaders, because that's who Jesus mentions here in Luke chapter 6. The blind leaders of the blind, who've got the tree trunk sticking out of their eyes. Here's the thing. There are many wonderful religious leaders and spiritual leaders who get life from their relationship with God and live out of fullness. So this isn't about all religious leaders, uh, not at all. But it can be the case with some religious leaders that while we all bottom feed, they are just better at it. That's how they get into a leadership position. Religious leaders who are bottom feeders are those who are the experts at bottom feeding. They do it the most impressively. They tend to be the people that are most hungry. These are folks who sometimes go into ministry and they have all the sincerity in the world, but they go into ministry maybe without realizing it, but they do it because they're hungry. They need life. They need to impress people. They need people to love them. They need people to look up to them. So they go into ministry out of neediness. And the result is they're constantly feeding off of people. 
Religious leaders who are bottom feeders are the most motivated to look the best. So they're the most motivated to hide the mess. Religious leaders who are bottom feeders are those who have the most at stake in the judgment game. They tend to judge the harshest. They tend to compare uh, with, with, with the least amount of objectivity. They tend to have the biggest two-by-four sticking out of their eyes, and they tend to be the ones that notice it the least. But they sure do notice specks in other people's lives because that's, that's the source of life to them. And they raise up a tribe of people who follow their example, and now you have a community of people who scapegoat going after some particular group of sinners because it happens to be a sin that they don't have, and they think that that sin is a two-by-four, and all, their little sins are just dust particle, reversing what Jesus tells us to do. You see how it works. So you have a bottom-feeding leader who then creates a bottom-feeding bottom uh, uh, congregation. And if you're healthy, when you're in this kind of community and you're around this sort of leader, you, you, your, your radar bu buzzers will go off if you're healthy. Um, there'll be an air of unreality, an air of superiority, an air that this is just a little bit too perfect. There's something unreal, something not quite fully human going on here. Uh, th there's something that is a miss here. Um, very frequently, religious leaders who are bottom feeders are the ones who are intensely legalistic. And for, they, they're like control freaks where they try to have impose rules on everybody. But even that's about them. They're getting fed because how the congregation looks, especially to their peers, becomes a source of life to them. And so if a person screws up and gets real, they're embarrassed for that. It reflects poorly on them. If you're a bottom feeder, it's always about you. And even if you do generous stuff, in the end, it's about you. Who's looking while you do that generous stuff? These are the ones that Jesus says are the wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, uh, they look like sheep, and they're supposed to be feeding the sheep, but actually, they feed on the sheep. If you've ever been in a congregation like this, and I know some of you have, it's sort of understood that the pastor's above criticism. You know, there, it, you, there's all sorts of no-talk rules. You walk on eggshells, which is a way of saying you acknowledge that part of your job is to buttress them up, to put them on a pedestal, to make them feel good about themselves. And you even get a little bit of life by giving them life in this particular way. There's, there's role-playing that, that goes on here. And what Jesus is saying here is this. Religious leaders who are bottom feeders, you see, all of us struggle with bottom feeding, but religious leaders are good at it, and so they can incarnate they incarnate the bottom-feeding dysfunction. They, they manifest it in an unambiguous way. And they are blind. And they lead blind people. And it's a scary situation. They're blind. They're blind to what real life is about. They're blind in this deception that somehow fullness of life has gotten from getting religious accolades and impressing God or, or what have you. They're blind to, to living in love. They're blind to living in mercy. They're blind to seeing their own worth. That's why they're always trying to achieve it. And here God wants to give it to them for free. But they're, they're too busy achieving it. And since they're good at it, they don't even notice that it's not really working because it is kind of working for them. They're blind to their own worth. And they're blind to the worth of others. Because they're looking at the world through the eyes of their judgment, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their little grid, and what they see is the dust particles in people's eyes. They don't see the unsurpassable people, worth that people have just by virtue of the fact that they're created by God and Jesus Christ died for them. These are the blind leaders of the blind. And it's a scary situation. Jesus confronts blind leaders like the Pharisees of the first century in very strong, harsh terms. He speaks nothing but loving, kind words to everybody else. To the prostitutes, lady caught in adultery, the lady who's been married five times and now shacking up with a guy. Nothing but merciful words. But when it comes to these religious leaders, the one who looks so good and, and got it all together and hide any kind of mess, 
There, Jesus confronts them harshly. And the reason is this, because they are farther from the kingdom than everybody else. Jesus says the, the prostitutes are going to go into the kingdom of God before you. You have to confront religious leaders like this harshly because the soft words don't work here. Soft words work, and kind words, merciful uh, words, work for other people who know that they're hungry. But if you're talking to a person for whom uh, the religiosity is actually working as a false form of life, they've already, part of their grid of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is such that they've sabotaged love as a means of getting through to them. This is the scariest thing in the world. When, when, when they see acts of kindness or hear words of love, the soft approach, their little internal prosecutor says, oh, another mamsy-pamsy, God is love, wishy-washy on sin kind of a person. You see, and, and so love can't get through to them. So Jesus, out of love, confronts them in very strong terms. He's really saying, wake up! Tries to shock them, calls them vipers, uh, and says the prostitutes are going into heaven before you guys. And what's really scary is that not only are they blind, but they are training people how to be blind. And now you have the blind leading the blind. So for the sake of other people, to protect other people, Jesus publicly confronts them in very big ways. This is very, very important stuff that Jesus is talking about here. Now, I want to give three commitments here in the next 15 minutes or so. Tell the children's church we're going to go over probably four minutes here. Charlie, would you just tell them that? Just so they know. So, okay, I want to keep peace, reconciliation, love. All right. Um, <laughs> stretch out their lesson here. I'll try to cram mine in. They're supposed to stretch theirs out. Three commitments that I think will help us stay free from bottom feeding and will help us protect ourselves against religious leaders who are bottom feeders. All right, three commitments. First commitment is, is Kingdom 101. The kingdom begins and ends with this. This is what it's all about. Commit to getting life from Christ alone. Everything hangs on this. Get your life, get your worth from Christ alone. Get your love from Christ alone. Get your inner identity from Christ alone. Get your sense of living a full life from Christ alone. Uh, it all hangs on that. Only to the degree that we're getting our life from Christ alone can we ever, in a healthy, non-performance way, begin to live out the kingdom as it's described here in Luke chapter 6. It all hangs on that. What it means is this. We need to have special times that we have, as for example in our corporate worship service, but have it on your own as well. Time where you just meet with God and feast. Feed yourself. Uh, drink deeply of the well of that unsurpassable worth that flows from Calvary. Remind yourself and hear Christ say to you, picture Christ say to you, what your worth is, what your value is, how he loves you, uh, you know, and, and, and what life is all about. Let him pour his love and pour his life and pour his worth and pour his security into you. Drink deeply. We need to have times where we do that. But also throughout the day, I encourage you, in this world of bottom feeders, our natural default setting is to bottom feeding. So throughout the day, remind yourself about what is true, who you are and who God is, and walk in that truth. I've had kind of a mantra or a slogan that I say to myself, uh, some, some, some periods of my life more than others, and it varies some, but it, 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 at, the, at its base, it looks something like this. Life is Christ, nothing else matters. Whenever I find myself sucking life off of the bottom, I remind myself life is Christ, nothing else matters. I get my worth from Jesus Christ, not from anything else. I'm loved with an unsurpassable love in Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus Christ defines every square inch of my being. I am filled with the love and the peace and joy of Jesus Christ. I'm surrounded by that. Walk in that. Train your mind to walk in that. Maybe put post-it notes all over the place. To remind yourself of what your source of life is. Get life from Christ. Nothing else matters. When it comes to leaders, leaders, 
if they model anything, if they teach anything, it ought to be this. At least Christian leaders, this is what they ought to teach and this is what we ought to model. The most important thing a leader can do is to model what it is to not get life from your congregation, not get life from how the offering is going, not get life from how big your church is, not get life from your religious performance, but you get life from Jesus Christ alone and to model the freedom that that brings into a life. And if you're in an environment where that's not happening, beware. Because it may be that there's some bottom feeding that is going on. Jesus says students are not above their teacher. But a fully trained student will look just like, be just like their teacher. And that is a principle which works for better or for worse. If you're not a leader, you're a follower. And all of us are called to follow somebody. And, and if the one you're fo- you will tend to become, all other things being equal, you'll become in the image of the one that you follow. So Jesus is saying here, be careful not to follow blind leaders. The ones who've got two by four sticking out of their eyes and are looking for the speck in your eyes. Be careful not to follow that because they'll lead you into a pit. Get life from Christ alone. Number two, and it follows directly from the first one, you get life from Christ alone and now commit to being real. Absolutely real. The most important question to ask yourself after you ask the question, am I getting life from Christ alone, is to ask the question, what is real? Not the question, how am I doing? That will take you out of the real. That will put you into the performance game. Ask the question, what is real right here and right now? One of the core values we have at Woodland Hills Church, and that's an important one, and we're never going to negotiate on this one, and that is that how things look is not important. How things actually are is what is important. Or another way we say it is, what's important is reality, not religion. As long as you're worried about how things look, you can't possibly be worried about how or interested in how things actually are. We collapse what we call the point system, the social point system, where you get points for having it together and you get points taken away for not having it together. Get rid of the point system. Because all of our value comes from Jesus Christ, whether you got it together or don't. You have the same value. It's infinite and unsurpassable, and you get it from Jesus Christ. Collapse the point system. Amen. And when you do that, if, if you're getting your life from Christ, it means that you no longer have any currency any economic currency on how you're doing, which means you can now be vulnerable with how you're doing. You can be real with that. The, the church is supposed to be a community of truth, the Bible says. And the Spirit of God is the spirit of truth. The word truth in Greek is aletheia, and it means not covered. We're to relate to each other uncovered. Relate to each other real. And it doesn't mean that we're supposed to air our dirty laundry out in front of everybody at all times. But it does mean that, does mean that we have to have an atmosphere of honesty that's free from pretense. And it does mean we've got all need communities, some context, where we can be absolutely real with what's going on. Which, if you do that, you'll fulfill another biblical command, and that is to confess your sins to one another. Because if you're real, there's going to be stuff there that's not perfect, and that's what comes out. You have to... Bring your inner world into alignment with your outer uh, world so that the inside and the outside look the same. To the degree that we don't do that, there's a duality there, which is what the word hypocrisy means. Hippo means twofoldness. And the religious leaders are the ones who, man, who incarnate that to the max. We need to be okay, and this is what this whole sermon series is all about, we need to be okay with mess. Because mess is just part of life. And unless you're okay with mess, you'll never in a healthy way get out of your mess. Here's what's real, and then we just address it. Leaders need to model that. They need to, Christian leaders need to model vulnerability. This is why we titled this message, leaders, Leadership with a Limp. 
Uh, we all limp because we've all been wounded. Leaders need to m- model that they've wrestled with God at times, and like Jacob, they come away with a limp. Uh, there's wounds in your life. It hasn't always been perfect, and it's not perfect now. And to put that limp on display and not try to hide it, not try to play super Christian, I'm super pastor, I'm super anything. No, you're just a human being who's doing what God called you to do. Be that. In all this messiness, whatever's real, let the, and model that. We need to be aware that we can all have beams sticking out of our eyes and, 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 and shortcomings, and we need to model what it is to humbly acknowledge that. We try to do that here at Woodland Hills Church. I don't know if we do it perfectly, but, but we try to do that. I, I've tried to be honest with uh, you know, my drug use in the past and, and the, the pornography struggles in the past and uh, you know, some of the marriage struggles that we've had in the past. And see, when you do that, when you do that, now everyone else who's had marriage problems, and there's probably one or two here in this auditorium, I'm thinking, guessing, maybe, uh, but see, all of a sudden you realize you're not alone. This isn't a perfect marriage club. You know, marriages get messy. Marriages of pastors sometimes get messy. But then you have a chance to say, praise God, he helped us through that, and we thought it was hopeless, but he gave us hope. And now you're giving hope to people who maybe are thinking about bailing, and God uses that in a lot of different ways. So we try to be vulnerable with that. I've been honest here about how sometimes when I'm mad, it's not just wonderful praise the Lord's that come out of my mouth. I, I, I struggle with that. I, 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 all of a sudden, I blame it on my dad because he's installed all these creative swearing tapes that I'm trying to delete. But I, I swear sometimes... And the worst thing is, I think, this cynicism that I struggled with. I just I struggle with cynicism, which the Lord showed me a couple of years ago is a form of judgment, and I wrote the book against judgment. And here I am judging by being cynical. To be cynical about stuff, you've got to be superior to it. <laughs> so the Lord had to slap me around a little bit and said, Greg, I don't recall making you superior to everyone else, so you can be, you don't have the right to be cynical about the church in America or anything. Uh, just be the kingdom 24-7. So I try to be honest about that. Try to model vulnerability. Now, having said those faults, I will say that in every other area, I'm perfect. But I do have those, just so you know, I don't want anyone. I'm really better than average so far as I can tell. The lead, who you follow will influence you strongly on, on, on who you become. So make sure that you're, you're following something that's real, not a blind leader of the blind. Which leads to the third commitment we need to make, and that is this, to be humble. This goes beyond just being real. Now, it takes humility just to be real. But the humility of the kingdom goes beyond just being real. Jesus, in order to help us get free of our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, our addiction to judgment, in order to help us get free of bottom feeding, he tells us to not only be real with the sin in our life, but to consider our own sin to be a tree trunk, that sticks out of our eyes, and to consider whatever other sin you see in another person to be a little tiny dust particle by comparison. Compare a giant tree to a dust particle. That's how we're to view our sin in relationship to whatever other sin we see in a person's life. See, judgment does the opposite of that. Judgment says, my sin, oh, I'm not perfect, but I have the little dust particle sins. But those people over there have the deal breaker tree trunk sins. And that's judgment. We feed off of that. I'm not like them. Jesus says, do the opposite. Do the opposite. And leadership should model the opposite. Here's what Paul says. It's an amazing thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Okay, so this is something, by the way, it's a saying, it's a slogan that we're all supposed to accept. Full accept, okay? Here's the saying. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. We're all supposed to be saying that. 
Now, if you do the math, it doesn't work very well because you can only have one worst, really. Uh, we could turn this into a, co- you know, a competition game. I'm the worst sinner. No, I'm the worst sinner. No, I'm the worst sinner. No, don't go there either. But what he's saying is our attitude ought to be such that far from putting ourselves over people, we understand that all that we are is a matter of grace. And we're all acutely aware of our own imperfections and sins and struggles, and they feel to us worse than whatever we see in another person's life. Here's the paradox of leadership and the paradox of the kingdom. On the one hand, Paul says, follow me even as I follow Christ. Paul's life did emulate Christ-likeness. And in terms of like a social gradation moral scale, I bet Paul would have been way above average. And yet that same Paul says, I am the worst of sinners. Now he's not saying, follow me because I'm the worst of sinners. In other words, sin like me. He's not saying that. But he is saying, follow me as Christ is being formed in me. And part of that is my humility to confess that I'm the worst of sinners. So follow me in this humility here. Here's the kingdom paradox. Now follow this. The closer you get to Christ, the more Christ-like you become. You get formed in his image. His character becomes your character. The more Christ-like you become, the more you celebrate and manifest your unsurpassable worth. Because you're getting life from Christ. You're starting to overflow. You have a surplus of life that begins to bubble over towards others. That's going to happen as you grow in Christ-likeness. But the more you celebrate and manifest your unsurpassable worth, the more you begin to notice and feel the weight of your own particular sin. Stuff that didn't bug you about yourself 10 years ago, now it's like, ooh, i got to start wrestling with that one. And you didn't even notice it before. Humility is a sign of spiritual maturity. Judgment is a sign of spiritual immaturity. It means that you're still addicted to bottom feeding. The more you feel the weight of your sin, look at this, the less inclined you are to judge. How can I possibly be standing over somebody in judgment when I'm so aware of my own sin? And the less inclined I am to judge, look, watch this, the more you see and celebrate the unsurpassable worth of others. You now can see clearly. You now, now, now the beam has begun to come out of your eye, and now you can begin to see what is real. You begin to see like God sees. Before, you're looking at the world through the lens of your, your, your grid, your bottom scum-sucking grid of judgment, and what you see is what you disagree with, with this, what you prove, and, and that little assessor and prosecutor and excusers, all that work in your little metallic world of judgment going on there. And as you get free of that, because you realize that, that you're the one who's got the two-by-four and you have no right to be judging them, you walk in love, you take off those spectacles, and behold, what you see is a creation of God and someone that Jesus paid an infinite price for. And now what you see on the outside, their lifestyle or their attitude, whatever, uh, it's inconsequential. Because the one thing that you're supposed to do is agree with God about the worth of the person that you see. And that's what it is to love your enemies. That's what it is to love everybody. And now the kingdom, as it's described in uh, Luke chapter 6, is beginning to happen to you. You've uncorked the river of life uh, that is placed within you. Uh, You are receiving life for free and you're dispensing life for free. And that, folks, is the dance of the kingdom. Be careful who you follow. Are they modeling that? Or are they, in fact, blocking that and are training people how to be scum-sucking, bottom-feeding fish who get their life and worth from the religiosity? You don't want to go there. Get your life from Christ? Commit to it. Be real? Commit to it. Be humble? Commit to it. That is the kingdom. Close your eyes for a moment. And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit here to seal this message on our hearts. Holy Spirit, will you point out any area of our life where we are scum-sucking? 
Holy Spirit, if there's something, uh, and Lord, give us the wisdom to know this difference. It's good to feel good about what you're good at, because God made you that way. But Holy Spirit, show us when it's not that, but rather it's getting life. It's our identity. Our, our well-being goes up and down based on how we do on this. And Holy Spirit, will you just remind us, point that out. And then I want to ask the Holy Spirit to help us put like a post-it note on that idol. And the post-it note reads, get life from Christ. So whenever we find ourselves scum-sucking, we don't, don't get mad at it, don't beat yourself up, you're just hungry. But rather, let it remind you to now turn your heart back to Christ and feast on the love and the goodness, the unending love of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, seal this into our life and give us the wisdom to know when we're just feeling good about ourselves versus when we're getting life. And give us the wisdom to know when those we're following are feeding off of us rather than feeding us. May the love and the grace and the goodness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be on us and flow through us unconditionally to all other people as we leave this place to build the kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Hey, the altar is open. If you would like to come forward and get prayer for anything, I encourage you to come forward. Would our prayer teams come up here? If you're here and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, come on up here. These folks would love to pray with you and usher you into the kingdom. Go out and build the kingdom.